You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The world is filled with chatter, although you might not notice most of it. Everything that's alive is sending information from one place to another. People in conversation, birds singing, plants emitting chemicals, even neurons in our brains signal to other neurons and to other cells in our body. It's a mad shuffle of information everywhere, continuously. The data are transferred in different kinds of packages, the way computers bundle information in bits and bytes. Humans use words, for example. But if I were a plant, you might hear this. Now, that was the release of chemical molecules. If I were a whale... Those acoustic squeals would get my point across. Survival of any species depends on being understood, and these seemingly wildly different forms of communication have more in common with each other than once thought. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Are We Alone? Only in the last few decades have scientists discovered that the whale song is more than hauntingly beautiful. It's a complex form of communication within a species, in this case, humpback whales. Scientists understand some basics about whale communication, but the code still hasn't been cracked. What the whales might be saying is the plot behind a new ecological thriller by Douglas Carlton Abrams. The story opens on the sea. The Pacific squall bobbed on top of the cresting waves, the steel hull of the research vessel vibrating from the whale song. The otherworldly music spilled out from the speakers strapped to the walls as whale biologist John Mattings accompanied on the cello. His weathered fingers, graying hairs surrounding each knuckle, pressed the strings against the neck as if taking its rhythmic pulse. The other hand lovingly rocked the delicate bow across the strings in a hypnotic melody. Although he had studied many kinds of whales, there was nothing quite like the song of the humpback. Its rhythm was scored to the rolling ocean, its haunting sounds gave voice to the abyss. Matting suddenly stopped playing. Quickly he put the cello in its case and jumped to the computer console. His trembling fingers flicked on a desk lamp, its bulb cast a spotlight revealing the computer and a black synthesizer. Anxiously, Maddings adjusted the black knobs of the recording equipment, unable to believe the sounds coming from the directional hydrophone. Built into the hull of the boat, this underwater microphone picked up the sounds echoing through the sea. Maddings made sure he was recording and then grasped the black joystick. He rotated the hydrophone 360 degrees. In every direction, the song was the same. In every direction, the song was new. So begins the book Eye of the Whale. In it, the humpback whale song has changed suddenly, but why? And then a whale swims up the Sacramento River. What's he trying to communicate and to whom? Doug Abrams' book is a thriller, but to write it, he did extensive research with biologists who study whale song and with epidemiologists who research the health of these intelligent animals. It's so interesting because we've had this concept of intelligence. We look at the rest of the natural world and we wonder how their intelligence compares to our own. And we don't really have a definition of what 
true intelligence is. We have all these definitions or assumptions generally that preference human intelligence. But really, the one of the things that I realized in researching this novel and working with some extraordinary biologists and scientists was that the true mark of intelligence is the ability to survive. And as one of my characters say, with that definition of intelligence, the experiment in human intelligence is not yet proven successful. Now, you wrote this book, The Eye of the Whale, after doing a lot of research. And in your acknowledgments, you mentioned Roger Payne, who founded the Ocean Alliance. And 30 years ago, he was the one that discovered that humpback whales had song. And their songs are very structured. They're actually quite complex. Can you describe that? Yeah, actually, it was a joy to work with Roger. Absolute uh, model of a scientist, humanist, actually he does play the cello. So uh, my character, that quality was stolen from Roger, I have to admit. But the songs themselves originally were just assumed to be kind of random sounds. But what Roger identified was that these are actually structured songs that are very similar in many ways to human songs. And they have qualities of rhythm, even rhyme to them. So there's quite a sophisticated syntax and structure to the songs that they develop and that they sing, and that these songs change over time. And they actually have shown that these songs are influenced by the singers. So one singer, one whale, will introduce an innovation in the song, and then that innovation will be picked up by the other whales, and the song will evolve over time. Just as human music, has, jazz, for exactly. example, has evolved over time. Yeah, it's, it's like almost like a constant improvisation. And is the idea, too, that there is a communication in that song? Or is it call and response? Well, it's an interesting question. There are two predominant theories in terms of what the song is used for. One is that it's a kind of romantic ballad. It's a, it's a song of, of courtship. The other, that it's somehow used competitively with other males, because it's only the males that sing. But in terms of the evolution of the song and the communication between the whales... One of the theories that we were proposing in the novel was that there might be social sounds in the songs, and that was hypothetical at the time I started writing the novel. That has actually been proven to be the case, that they have found social sounds in whale song. What what does that mean, a social sound? A social sound is kind of where you say, hey, Bob, uh, let's go eat some krill over here, or a contact call between a mother and a child would be a, a social sound. So they have identified social sounds sounds in song. In the fictional realm, what this creates the possibility for is that these are not just instrumental songs, but that there might actually be the possibility of lyrics. Well, and this brings up one of the strongest points, I think, of your novel is there's so much about these incredible creatures, whales, also dolphins, which are part of the whale family. Yeah. And we don't know what their capacity is. We don't know how they might be communicating, what they might be saying, and actually how intelligent they are. Although we have a notion that they are very intelligent, but we can't quantify it, which is something that humans seem to want to do. Well, one of the things that, it, by way of quantifying, or at least empiricizing their intelligence, we have discovered that they have spindle cell neurons, which are the most sophisticated neurons that we humans have that do allow the possibility of language and of complex thought. I mean, one of the things we I tried very hard in this novel was not to just anthropomorphize whales and make them into, you know, very large, multi-ton humans, but to work with marine biologists to discover what their intelligence might be like. And I think it is fascinating that we look up into the heavens and we wonder about other intelligent life in the universe. And in researching this novel, what became so apparent to me is that there is this extraordinary intelligence from this sister mammalian species from which we co-evolved that's in the ocean, and we're just beginning to understand and explore the possibility of of their intelligence. The Eye of the Whale does examine this relationship between our intelligence and the intelligence of these animals. And Elizabeth McKay, who is your protagonist, this this scientist, more than once comes face-to-face with a whale and sees the intelligence in the eye. And this is a phrase that comes up at least twice in your book, the intelligence in the eye. Yes. What does that mean? Well, I think that there's this poetic phrase of the eye as the window of the soul. And I think what the poets were yearning for and trying in that phrase was a way of 
explaining that we see intelligence through the eyes. We see consciousness in the eyes. Uh, we look into uh, an eye of another person or of an animal, and we feel like that is the place where we can witness what kind of intelligence, what kind of understanding emotion exists behind those eyes. And certainly... I don't presume to understand from looking into the eye of a whale what the whale would be thinking. I will say when I was swimming with whales and researching this novel that uh, when a escort whale, a 50,000-pound escort whale, came over to check me out and looked me in the eye and then raised his pectoral fin gracefully over my body so he didn't hit me, I knew there was intelligence in that whale. Uh, so, so you have come eye to eye with a whale. I have had that uh, in incredible experience. And I think that th there is a danger in anthropomorphizing, but there's an equal danger, I think, in human exceptionalism. And this is the belief that somehow we are so discontinuous with the rest of mammalian or biological life that somehow we are so separate from it that we can't understand them and they can't understand us. Now, you said that this is fact-based novel. And in, at one point, Apollo, which is a, the name of a humpback whale in the story, swims up the Sacramento River. And I should say that much of the story takes place in California, here in California. So I recognized many of the names as yes. I read it, even down to Saul's in Berkeley, <laughs> um, which is a deli in, in Berkeley. And so this humpback whale named Apollo swims up the Sacramento River. And this was actually based on at least two incidents where whales swam up the Sacramento. Absolutely. So the story I was reading my daughters was about hum uh, Humphrey, the humpback whale, who had swam up in 1985. And then actually, as I was writing the novel, uh, in 2007, two whales, Delta and Dawn, swam up the Sacramento again. And I was able to go uh, work with Francis Gulland, who is the head of veterinary science at Marine Mammal Center, who was involved in the, the whale rescue, and watch her rescuing whales in real time. So it was this experience of watching my novel unfold before me and being able to say, well, oh, that's, that's how it would be done. And that was quite incredible. Now, as Apollo, as he's going up the river, he's singing as whales do, and we, we just discussed. And you raise the possibility that he has a social sound embedded in his song, and I won't away what it is. Is the message intended for other whales or is it intended for humans? Well, this is a great question, which is, is there the possibility of interspecies communication? In terms of the novel, I think, you know, you, every reader will decide for themselves what they think is happening. I ultimately came down on the side that this was really a communication to other whales that we happen to eavesdrop on. I think this whole question of interspecies communication is quite interesting, and I'm a bit of an agnostic about it, but I do think that one of the things, there there is a scene where Apollo comes to the aid, he's a humpback whale, and he comes to the aid of a gray whale, and this was actually also conjectural about whether whales, different whale species would have those kind of behaviors where they would defend each other or uh, interact with each other in that way. And I was actually heard about an experience where a humpback whale did come to the aid of a gray whale calf who was being attacked uh, by orca whales. There's also the case where a human is saved, and this is alluded to in the book, by a whale bumping off a shark. But I've heard this from surfers where it's a dolphin that yes. actually comes and gets in between the human and the shark that is making a beeline for the human. Is that, well, there are anecdotal stories about those kinds of rescues that have happened. There's also the story of a dolphin that uh, led a stranded pilot whale out of a cove where the, the pilot whale was trapped. So there are these, these stories about interspecies cooperation, if you will, or some form of communication. In this book, you suggest that there's this message that the whales want to get out, and Apollo is the ambassador in, in some ways for that, that there is this message embedded in their song. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking there's a message embedded in your book, too. Well, uh, the whales are communicating as they potentially have the ability to communicate. We have the privilege in this story of overhearing that communication, of hearing that. One of the things that I was discovering in my research was that the threats in our environment are not just at the 
climate change level, at the macro level. There are enormous dangers that we face at the micro level as well. And one of the specific ones is in the, in the form of endocrine disruption, in the form of the chemicals that we're putting out into the world and what that's doing to our body, our physiology. And so the novel is about understanding how all the puzzle pieces fit together. Well, let's say more about those chemicals. And you mentioned endocrine disruptors. I wonder if you could just explain what they are. Sure. So endocrine, our endocrine system is our hormone system. And what we're discovering is that there are chemicals that we're putting into the environment, like plastics, that look a lot like estrogen or like these hormones to our bodies. And as a result of that, it changes our physiology. It's changing our fertility. It's causing an incredible increase in hormonal cancers like breast cancer, prostate cancer. One study recently looked at uh, fetal cord blood. So this is the blood of babies who have just been born. So before they've been exposed to eating or drinking or breathing anything, basically, what's in their blood? And quite astonishingly, they found 413 toxic industrial chemicals in the blood of those children and over 200 per child. Well, you may have answered what my next question was because as I was reading this book and I have it in front of me and parts of it are marked out where I've written, is this true? Is this really true? Could this be real? For example, the geographic extent of some of these chemicals throughout the, the ocean. And I'm wondering... Is that accurate? We would, in, in the book, they talk about some of these chemicals being far out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Absolutely. Actually, the most astonishing facts in the novel are all true. And to your specific point about the, the global distribution of these chemicals, because of the way that the tides work and because of the way that the, the air circulates on the planet, these chemicals are so widely distributed so that even in very remote Pacific islands up in the Arctic, we're finding these chemicals. In fact, you say in, at the very end of the book that it is true that beluga whales are so full of chemical pollutants that when they wash up on a beach dead, they have to be treated as hazardous waste. Yeah, that is that was one of perhaps the most astonishing realizations in writing this book, that a beluga whale to be transferred across provincial lines in Canada must have a special permit because its body is so full of toxins that it's considered toxic waste. Which gives you a hint as to what some of the themes are in the book. I I do have to say there was a point when Elizabeth and her husband come across some of this data and, and they're astonished at what they learn. And I wrote in the margin, but they were scientists. Would they really have been astonished at what was happening to our oceans? Well, I think that the the kind of science that's in the novel is is very much on the forefront of scientific discovery. So I mean, my wife, for example, is a physician. She's a scientist. She deals with a lot of health issues and environmental health issues, and she wasn't aware of all the the data. And I think the way that science works is it's an iterative process where we learn more gradually and we have more and more compelling information, more studies, more data. And there's a vital role for scientists and others, and I hope for even for novelists, who are able to assemble that data in such a way that we can understand what's the meaning of the data. Douglas Carlton Abrams is the author of Eye of the Whale. I really enjoyed Doug's book. This is one of those rare books that kept me up till midnight so I could finish it. Well, you can find links to Doug and the book on our website, radio.seti.org. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart 
and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Okay, so whales can communicate with other whales, check. Humans with other humans, check. Whales with humans, question mark. But so far, all forms of animal-to-animal communication. What about plant-to-animal? To study this seemingly radical idea, Lawrence Doyle, who usually researches whale communication and how it applies to SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, has applied something called information theory to the world of chlorophyll and roots. Information theory is a branch of mathematics that deals with the quantification of information and can fold in other disciplines such as biology. Well, Lawrence has applied this bit of analysis in the study of lots of animal-to-animal communication, the dance of bees, the signaling of ants, the squeals of dolphins. But this is the first application of information theory to describe possible communication between the plant and animal kingdoms, the plant on display, Gossypium hirsutum, the cotton plant. There's a certain kind of cotton plant that's known to communicate with insects and tell them which plants to land on. In other words, it indicates which plants need the help of the insect to eat the herbivores off the cotton plant. So the cotton plant's yelling for help. But, I mean, is this signaling in the sense that, you know, you might have a bright yellow flower to attract insects for pollination? I mean, I guess you could call that communication. But but you're talking about language, not just communication, right? Yes, yeah. The cotton plants actually, different predators land on the cotton plants, and they emit a series of nine chemicals that depend on what predator is eating them. And they can tell, and they yell help in the appropriate chemical language for the predator that likes to eat that herbivore. So, uh, wait a minute, let, let, me, let me get this straight. The cotton plants are being bugged by, well, certain kind of predators, bugs, right? Yeah, herbivores, we'll say. Herbivores. Oh, herbivores. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Give me an example of a herbivore. That... Well, the, the, um, there's a kind of uh, cotton worm that eats the cotton plant, and there's, say, a kind of cotton caterpillar. And the cotton plant can say, oh, that's a caterpillar. I'm going to call the wasp that likes to eat the caterpillar as opposed to the bird that likes to eat the worm. Okay, so they they recognize that they're under attack by a certain kind of animal, Mm -hmm. and then they call, they know who the predators are, at least they know how to call a predator. Yes, and this was all work done uh, previously. What had not been done is to show that there's information in this chemical communication and also demonstrate how the insects can tell which uh, cotton plant is signaling them. Well, now, how do you establish that? Well, uh, there's a field called information theory, and it was developed at Bell Labs because they had to calculate how much information needs to be sent through phone lines. And now it's used by computer people. Well, we had this idea to use it for bottlenose dolphins a number of years ago, and then we applied it to humpback whales. And I thought, being a SETI Institute person, I'd try the most extreme communication across the plant and animal kingdoms. And so we applied it to the chemical communication of plants. Can you explain how this theory goes? I mean, how can you recognize that some noise is being made, for example, by a, by a whale or, or, or a dolphin is real language and not just, you know, the barking of dogs? I, I figured that they didn't really have a language. They just had a couple of, a handful of barks, a paw full of barks. Yeah. You, what you have to do is you have to look at how frequently they use certain sounds compared to other sounds. If you were to plot human languages, Basically, what you get is a distribution of the sounds from human languages, and they're a mix of repetition and diversity. If you only have diversity, for example, if you were to record babies babbling, they make all their sounds of about equal frequency. So if you were to plot that, you would get a kind of a horizontal line. In other words, the frequency on the vertical axis would be about the same. If you look at human languages, they give you a 45-degree slope. So the line is such that when you plot human languages, all human languages follow this rule. You get this 45-degree slope. So you can very primitively, when you start with information theory, do this kind of a plot with any signals. We've done it with signals from bottlenose dolphins, and we get this 45-degree linguistic shape. So the implication is they're conveying information. Yes. You have to have that slope in order for them to be conveying information. If you get a flat plot like baby babbling, and it turns out dolphin babbling as well is flat. Baby dolphins. Yes, baby dolphins. So then you can, once you get that, you know that 
if you've done everything correctly, that it, there's no complex information being transmitted. Okay, so that's just sort of like a random rattling. It's like a raindrops falling on a on a inverted pail or something like that. It's just yeah. random noise. Yes, and I've done that for uh, pulsars as well as you know stars that emit radio pulses, and they're pretty random. Okay, so no words, language of pulsars. <laughs> right. Well, I just thought we'd throw in something SETI-like to make sure. <laughs> it would have been interesting if you'd said that the pulsars have a language. I, right. I must exactly. That would have been disconcerting for yeah, sure. Well, you've been encouraging in other ways. Okay, so the plants actually have a syntax. They have a, they have a language. They have a, I mean, what, what sort of – I mean, how extensive is this language? What sort of vocabulary does a cotton plant have? Oh, well, it's, I wouldn't say it goes far as to say syntax. I don't know – how you produce chemical syntax. But what was interesting was there were two predators on this cotton plant, and the wasp had to distinguish between the two. And, uh, but the cotton plant, as we analyzed it, it has a vocabulary of five words. Using nine chemicals, it produces reliably a vocabulary of five words. So it's not very complex, but there should be three more predators. Oh. in the history of this cotton plant. So that's the kind of thing you can get with information theory. You can say, well, a system evolved using five words, and yet you only need two. You actually only need one. If there's only two predators, right. all you really have to do is say help or not. So, so their verbal skills, so to speak, <laughs> exceed the requirements of their lifestyle. Exactly. So the implication is that um, they, there's something more complex going on. I'm speaking with Lawrence Doyle of the SETI Institute. Lawrence, you mentioned uh, humpback whales. You've done quite a bit of research with whales. You've even gone up to uh, where they live and recorded uh, their vocalizations, I guess it's called. Um, what's the story there? Do they have more than five words? Oh, yes. Um, just from the, the sound diversity, their, their communication system is more complex than humans. And I don't want to imply that we understand it's, that their um, communication system has more complex syntax or grammar or anything like that. But we can say they make a more diverse sound signals than humans do. Humans sound downright monotonic compared to humpback whales. Humpback whales also, along with bottlenose dolphins, have a huge range outside our hearing range. Uh, that was a social call from a humpback whale that's involved in a feeding behavior called bubble netting. And, and bubble netting, this is how they catch dinner? Yes. There's two ways humpback whales feed in southeast uh, Alaska. They can eat krill, and that's you just take your flipper and shove krill in your mouth, and so it's fairly simple. On the other hand, uh, herring are faster than the humpbacks, so you have to trick them into a net. So the humpbacks get together in a social network called a bubble netting, and they, some of them design a net out of bubbles that takes a cylindrical shape, and others chase the herring into the bottom of the net. And as the herring rise, the humpbacks rise underneath them uh, with their mouths open. Yeah. And that's called bubble net feeding. And uh, what's interesting is that Fred Sharp of the Alaska Well Foundation, who we've been collaborating with, he discovered that by taking samples of the skin that humpback whales shed, uh, that these bubble netting groups are not relatives. They're not related to each other. So what's the incentive? I, I suppose the incentive is they get a meal, right? Well, exactly. They form, they're the only other animals we know that form long-lasting relationships based on profession. Now, in this case, the ability to bubble net. You know, humans are the only other group that do that. So uh, if you you get about one or two chances to learn bubble netting, and if you blow it, we've seen some whales, uh, when they aborted a, a bubble net, they puffed themselves up, filled their mouth with water, and pushed this other guy away. He was like basically drummed out of the bubble netters guild, <laughs> at least for the day. They said, Donald Trump, you're fired. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Those guys are out of there. So I thought that was interesting, though, that they, they do form long-lasting relationships year after year based on the ability to bubble net. That's truly remarkable. Let me ask you, I mean, most animals make some sort of noise. I mean, in fact, the ones mm -hmm. that don't are usually uh, considered exceptional. I'm thinking of giraffes, maybe. But do they all have languages, or are some of them just 
you know, they have a few sounds. This this means a predator is nearby, and that means uh, I'm looking for a, a mate or whatever. I mean, do do they all have language at some level? Yeah, I would put language in quotes. And by the way, giraffes do have uh, make sounds. Oh, they do. Yeah, they're out of our range most of the time. It's like they're certainly out of my range. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they. I would say all animals communicate. And sometimes it's chemical, and sometimes it's uh, a noli dewlaps, you know, a kind of uh, lizard flashes the colors of their neck. And uh, some people are trying to decipher the communication system of uh, octopuses, for example, and uh, cuttlefish especially must have very complex communication systems. So, yeah, all animals communicate, and you can call it animal language, but if you can isolate the signals, you can apply information theory to them, and... What SETI's interested in is communication complexity. And information theory can measure how complex that language is. Well, finally, Lawrence, on the basis of this kind of research, if we were to pick up, for example, audio tones coming from another world, right, or or, or some sort of audio, Mm -hmm. whether it's tones or clicks or noises or pops or buzzes or whatever, we could use your approach to determine whether this is just static on their transmitter whether it's language? Absolutely. We, we could also quantify its degree of complexity and compare it with human languages. Uh, right now we can look at bottlenose dolphin and say, how does that compare with human language? Squirrel monkeys we've done, they're less complex than bottlenose dolphins. But what if we got a signal that was more complex with humans? We'd know where we stand. We could immediately tell, without having to decipher any of the message, we could nevertheless measure directly how complex it was compared to our language. And therefore, in a sense, how much more complex an extraterrestrial communication system must be. Truly fascinating. Lawrence Doyle, thank you so much for talking to me in a language I could understand. It's been my pleasure. I'm sure this broadcast has produced a nice, uh, reasonable linguistic slope. Lawrence Doyle is a scientist at the SETI Institute. Now, what he said may have caused your ears to prick up. Plants have language? Well, not quite, although Seth did use that word. Well, Molly, that's kind of the way I think of it. I mean, I wasn't differentiating between language and communication, I guess. Well, it's an easy confusion to make. So just to clarify the idea of talking plants, we brought in Doug Vakoch, who studies communication systems. Hi, Doug. Hi, Molly. Now, you heard that interview with uh, Lawrence Doyle and Seth. I did. I did. And and what struck me is how easy it is to start talking about plants as if they have language. Now, no doubt, there's a lot of information being exchanged. But if you listen to Lawrence very carefully, he was cautious not to say that plants have language. I mean, he said there's no evidence they have syntax. So they may be communicating a lot of information, but do they have sentences? And if you don't have sentences, it's really hard to talk about having language. So you don't believe plants have language? I don't believe plants have language, but I think they can communicate some important information. And they can do it in a variety of forms. I mean, there are great examples of mimicry among plants. There are these beautiful vines that grow in the tropics called passion flowers. They exhibit a form of mimicry by having these little yellow bumps along the length of the vine that look a lot like butterfly eggs. And one of the results of that is that butterflies don't come and lay their eggs on those vines, which is to the advantage of the plants. So in a sense, they're mimicking butterfly eggs on those. It's a kind of communication going on, but it's not at the level of language because when we talk about language in humans, there are these complex ideas that we can get across. Lawrence was making the point that you can use information theory to get a sense of how complex is the information that's being communicated. And, and we see that complex communication in some really neat ways. I'm thinking of uh, the example of Dictostelium discoideum, which is more commonly known as the slime mold. It's one of my favorites. It's great because they start out as these individual one-celled amoebas early in their life, and they're eating a bunch of bacteria all around them, but they're so successful that they eat all the bacteria, and they go into this starvation mode. They're in the soil. That's they're, 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 in the, they're in the soil, and they deplete the bacteria, and so when they're starving, they go into this, they're starting to produce all these chemicals that cause them to to aggregate together, and eventually they form these, these multicellular slugs and develop this long stalk that eventually gives off spores that create amoebas again. So there's a lot of complex coordination of effort. 
But it's not something like conversation. It's not like, you know, when the amoebas get together, they're not saying, well, hello, how was your day? Like language. There's signaling going on. There's signaling going on. But, you know, it strikes me in the show we've heard about whale communication. And now you're talking about the communication in slime molds, which are single-celled amoeba when they start out. Can we put communication of all these different creatures under the same umbrella, go from whales to slime molds? That seems extraordinary. Well, it is extraordinary. In fact, there's a field called semiotics that looks at communication in a broader sense than just language. And so the idea is that animals get a lot out of being able to communicate by taking information, sharing information in evolutionary terms. If you can gather information from your environment, share information with other animals, sometimes even, you know, ward away predators, you're more likely to reproduce and go on and, you know, have your offspring. So it's an advantage to be able to deal with information very effectively. But other than human beings, everyone else does it without language. Language is something very specific and very human. But the complexity is different between what a what a slime mold might be communicating to another slime mold and what a whale may be communicating to another whale or birds to each other and so forth. Yes, the complexity is very different. And, you know, it, it's important to look at how many words are they using, like Lawrence is doing in information theory. But you have to look at how are they stringing those words together. Are they making complex sentences? Is there an intentionality behind what they're saying? And that's something that you can't capture with information theory. But that's confusing again because you use the word words, and plants don't have words. And and I'm using words. I'm part of the same confusing process that we all get caught in because, you know, when we try to talk about communication, it's so easy to anthropomorphize the process. So, right, there are chunks of information, bits of information. So you caught me on that. That was a good one. Uh, it's not really words that plants are using in the sense that humans use words but there are little pieces of information. So in plants, it might be chemical signals. Those are their words. And for humans, they're actually sounds that we produce in our voice box. That's right. And those words themselves are composed of different sounds that are strung together by very specific rules that vary language by language. So even a word is very complex in a human language. So do you talk to your plants? This is your chance to confess. You know, I don't as much as I should, but, uh, but I'll make it a point to tomorrow. Okay, thanks a lot, Doug. My pleasure. Doug Vakoch is Director of Interstellar Message Composition at the SETI Institute. Coming up, so plants don't have language, but why do humans? It's Say What on Are We Alone? Science Radio for Thinking and Communicating Species on Any World. I'm here with my pet rubber plant, whose chemical signals I've translated into audible sound and amplified 40,000 times. We're here to share the benefits of joining Team SETI. Well, that's right. Joining Team SETI allows you to help the work of the SETI scientists who are trying to understand life on this planet and the possibility of it elsewhere in the universe. And joining is easy. Well, that's right. You just go to SETI.org and... (laughs) I was about to say that. Well, now let me finish. You'll get your turn in a moment. Joining is easy at SETI.org, and when you do join, send an email to... Well, geez, stop interrupting me. Look, I'm not running on. Do you have an opinion on everything? Send an email to Are We Alone? Send an email to Are We Alone at SETI.org, and we'll send you a photograph of the staff. You know who we are, and it's perfect for... You can't even spell megalomaniac. Perfect for fashioning into earplugs when your plant won't put a lid on it or wrapping up a rubber plant and tossing it into the compost bin. Finally, SETI.org and Are We Alone at SETI.org. Don't be talked out of it. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. 
Well, then who's playing first? Yes. I mean, the fellow's name on first base. Who? The fellow playing first base for St. Louis. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Well, what are you asking me for? I'm not asking you. I'm telling you who is on first. I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who is on first? Have you got a first base? What's remarkable is not that humans misunderstand each other, but that we understand each other as often as we do. Human language can be a powerful carrier of ideas. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. All built with a set of tools that we learn soon after birth. Whether it's English, Spanish, Chinese, Swahili, all humans possess language. But we're the only animals that do, and why is that? Why aren't the plants or, or whales or giraffes using language to talk to one another? Well, it all comes down to the twists and turns we found on the evolutionary road, as we learned from Stanford University anthropologist David D'Agusta. For example, why did human speech evolve in the first place? And the question of why or why not in evolution is always the trickiest. But for the question of why did it evolve in humans rather than other species, the answer seems to have to do with, first of all, our larger brain that gave us the neurological wiring, and also the social nature of humans. We rely upon each other to help us make our way and to survive, to get food, and so forth. So it meant that the development of language would be something that would be a big advantage in our species. In fact, you play this this fun what-if game, which is what if you were a Martian and you came down to this planet and you had to predict which of the animal species on this planet would develop language. You would look for certain things. What would you look for? Right. So if we were to imagine that humans hadn't yet evolved language, and we were looking from, from somewhere else, say Mars, and we were trying to predict in which lineage of all the different animals on Earth language would be most likely to evolve. The kind of things we would look for, first of all, would be organisms that were social, where their ability to reproduce and survive depends in large part on their interaction with other members of their species. So we would look first for something that was social. We would also look for organisms that had the ability to produce a wide range of sounds with fine control over those sounds. But a lot of animals can do that. Sure, sure. And that's why many animal species have evolved very complex systems of communication involving sound, birds, for example. But we differentiate between communication and language. So we would think of language as a particular subset of communication, where language implies the ability to communicate abstract ideas and symbolic ideas. So, for example, with language, we can easily ask the question, do you think it will rain tomorrow? But that's not something that we seem to find in any other species other than humans, is that ability to talk about things symbolically or in the abstract. We look for animals that are social right, and that can produce a range of sounds, and food comes into play, doesn't it? Right. That Again, if we were just going sort of on a priori grounds in, in theoretical terms, we would look for uh, species that cooperate to acquire food, that work together to forage, either by hunting or going out together to try to locate plant resources, because the ability to obtain food is obviously one of the keys to survival. And so if you rely upon communicating with others to get that food that you need to survive, that increases the premium on the ability to communicate. So basically anything in evolution that's going to provide a greater reward for improved communication, and by reward here I mean in terms of survival and reproduction, is something that's going to be selected for. Speech, by definition, then, is just the mechanical ability to make sounds or to make language? Right. It's, I mean, you can, you can define things different ways, but I think a useful way of defining things is to say that speech is just the vocal expression of language because, obviously, for example, with sign language, it's a full, rich language. It just lacks the vocal component. I think a useful way of thinking about it is speech is simply the verbal expression of 
language. Now, you also said that this is difficult, that question of why did speech evolve or why did language evolve in humans? It's actually difficult to answer. Why is it difficult? Because it requires us to understand the selective environment that it first evolved in. That's the first difficulty we encounter. And so just like if you ask, well, why did the Civil War happen? That's a much more difficult question than, say, the question of, well, when did the Civil War happen? What happened? It's much easier to document, well, there was this battle and that battle. But the question of, well, what was the motivating force underlying all of that is a more complex question. And it's particularly difficult when it comes to the evolution of human language because the anatomy that helps us produce our spoken language doesn't fossilize very well because most of it is soft tissues. So things in our throat, our vocal apparatus, and particularly our neurological wiring in the brain that gives us that ability in the first place to think symbolically, to think in abstract terms. So what are the best indicators or the indicator of when language arose? Well, the best indicators we have of when language probably arose are indirect. And the logic goes that in order to have language, you need to have the capacity to think abstractly and deal with symbols. And if you have that capacity to think symbolically and abstractly, that will probably manifest itself not just in language, but in other ways as well. For example, in artistic expression or in mortuary rituals, how you bury the dead. So the best indicator we have in the fossil record is when do we first see signs, other signs of symbolic behavior, such as art. And cave that takes paintings. us back exactly to cave paintings, mm -hmm. to carvings out of bone that we find, to things like beads that have been shaped. Those are indicators along with uh, the first indications of artifacts buried with the dead. And that, again, suggests some type of abstract or symbolic thought process going on. Well, you know, the timelines for all this can be confusing a little bit. I mean, we're talking about huge spans of time. So I wonder if we could just review that very quickly. When humans broke off from the other um, apes and then maybe some of these other important markers in the human evolution. Sure. If we were to kind of give a, a brief timeline of big events in human evolution, <laughs> the first one would be between somewhere between five and seven million years ago is when our lineage diverged from the chimpanzee lineage. And that's based largely on genetic comparisons. So we start there between five and seven million years ago. About two and a half million years ago, we see the first evidence of stone tool manufacture and use in early humans. Getting more recently, we see the first evidence of our own species of Homo sapiens at about 100 to 200,000 years ago. Uh, the famous Neanderthals that people may have heard of, they, they kind of stuck around between about 100,000 years ago and maybe 30,000 years ago in their classic form. And as far as the indicators of symbolic behavior and abstract thought that may indicate language, we really first see those show up in a big way about 50,000 years ago in the form of cave paintings and some of these early carved artifacts. So in the whole scheme of things, that's quite recent. If it you is, say that modern humans have been around for 100 to 200,000 years, that only in the last 50,000 years did we develop the ability to speak or to produce language. Right. It, it does seem to be one of of the traits that seem to be unique human features that differentiate us from even our closest relative, the chimpanzees. Things like having a big brain, walking on two limbs, and things like language. It seems that language was probably the last one of those to have evolved. What animal comes closest to humans in terms of being able to think abstractly? Well, it's, it's difficult to say because we don't necessarily have the best tests that, when, that you can administer to a wide range of species to judge how close to abstract or symbolic behavior they might be. The best guess would usually be, though, the, the two species of chimpanzees, primarily because they're most like us biologically. They're genetically extremely similar and certainly, cognitively, there's a lot going on there in the chimpanzee brain. So that would be chimps and bonobos? Right. 
this this connection between language and bigger brains, and you alluded to this earlier, is that a chicken and egg problem? I mean, do you have to have a bigger brain and then you can have language, or do you have to start working some of those cells and then your brain gets bigger? Right. Well, I would say it's probably not really a chicken or egg because in this case, there's very clearly other selective pressures that provide an incentive for bigger brains in our lineage besides language. And the big one that comes to mind is the manufacture and use of stone tools, which is the use of tools. That's something else that is absolutely fundamental to being human. I mean, I I would imagine that every adult on the planet right at this moment is within easy arm's reach of some kind of a tool. Even if it's a pen. Or an item of clothing. Mm -hmm. So we depend upon tools fundamentally. And when we trace that back in the archaeological and fossil record, it goes all the way back to at least two and a half million years ago, where we have the early evidence from a site in Ethiopia of stone tools. So the manufacture and use of these stone tools really became increasingly complex over the last two, two and a half million years, which would be something that would likely have co-evolved with larger brain size and provided a selective pressure for increased cognition so that you could make and use more complicated tools more efficiently. And that might have set the stage for language. And this, again, shows the importance of having a fossil record because it's only with this evidence of tools at two and a half million years ago, but the indirect indicators of symbolic behavior and language at about 50,000 years ago that kind of gives us the ordering and allows us to sort out, okay, it seems like maybe it was tool use that drove the brain expansion and set the stage for the subsequent development of language. Without a fossil record, we might have imagined it happening the other way around. Or being, as you said, kind of a chicken and egg thing between brain size and language. Well, David, thank you very much for talking to us. My pleasure. David D'Agusta is an anthropologist at Stanford University. You know, Molly, of course, this idea that we've developed language and can communicate such sophisticated ideas, of course, that's terribly important. I mean, I can read Julius Caesar, 2,000-year-old stuff, and I can learn from him. But, you know, my cat can't learn from cats that Julius Caesar might have had 2,000 years ago. Right. We can use language to record and document and pass down information and teach future generations. In other words, we can build on earlier generations, and animals really can't do that. It's it's a, a fantastic invention in some sense. Well, that's it for our show. Thanks to Barbara Vance and Gary Niederhoff for their help in producing it and to the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where looking for signals from intelligent species means first understanding communication at home. You've been listening to Say What on Are We Alone? And you can listen again or find archive shows on our website, radio.seti.org. What? I'm not biased in favor of animals. You again. No, James Harriet actually deserves praise. Is, is this your rubber plant well, set? Yeah, I'm afraid it is, Molly. This is the most outspoken rubber plant I've ever met. Uh, oh, okay, we got it right. I agree no good parts in Hollywood. But... Well, Little Shop of Horrors, that was an exception, right? I mean, no, I hear you. Equal representation, I mean, that's fair enough. You, you, you want more speaking roles? Oh, okay, well, all right. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.